Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions all washed down with three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a man who loves to talk and so would you if you were the owner of such an extensive vocabulary. In fact, he talks like a character straight out of Bridgerton, breathlessly lovable, flowery of tongue and almost childlike in his enthusiasm for, well, pretty much everything. At 34, he's charmed his way into our hearts from behind the reception desk of E4's Celebs Go Dating and is currently showing off his culinary talents in the celebrity best home cook kitchen. He grew up as the son, grandson and great-grandson of teachers at the prestigious independent Bradfield College and later moved to nearby Pangbourne College before attending the Royal Academy of Music led him into the world of show business. He's appeared in pantomimes and theatre productions all over the world, as well as auditioning for The Voice, where sadly none of the judges turned for him. But their loss was our gain. His podcast, Tom Reed Wilson Has Words With, sees him firing on all well-read cylinders as he explores his love of words with celebrity guests. I've just listened to the Jennifer Saunders one. I could not recommend it more. Give it a go. In fact, such is his love of words that every day... On Instagram, he treats, well, every day is a school day with a word of the day post, a daily literature lesson teaching us the meaning and origins of words like frequentative suffix, frankly, coconut, you'd be amazed, shambles, luddite, delf, skirmish, and my most recent favourite, pexniffian. Countdown, you need this man in your dictionary corner. Let's dial him up. I can't wait. It's Tom Reed Wilson. Goodness me. Well, I felt the pressure because obviously I've, you know, I as do you, I'm, I have to applaud you, Tom, because your research on your podcast with your guests is second to none. So you forced me to raise my bar this week and um, I drank three glasses of wine writing that intro. Shame on me. I think it's always better to write when you're all your sheets to the wind. I really do think that. T- tell me, tell me. Where does the, where where does this vast vocabulary and love of words come from? Well, I mean, in your lovely, heartwarming introduction, you did talk about my teaching lineage, and that was a jolly big part of it because I was very much an accidental sproglet. Um, my mum was <laughs> <laughs> my mum um, was accidental, otherwise known as a mistake. Uh, Is that correct? Yes, yes. I mean, hopefully eventually a happy one, but absolutely can tell. Um, But uh, my mum grew up on a college campus, which is what ended up happening to me. And it was a kind of a a tri-generational thing because the same thing happened to my granny. And there was this very curious thing where they almost thought that the school campus was was like the Truman Show and there wasn't a world outside of it. And my dad, he was an English master. And then they had me very quickly uh, in their relationship. And he never really had a groove for talking to children. He, He only could issue this sort of deluge of polysyllables. And one had to kind of Uh, try and ascend to his level and in a curious way I think it was the best way of talking to a child because there is a a study that says if you hear a word 11 times in context you know perfectly its definition without ever having read a definition and I think I heard words in very divergent contexts 
all the time. And I was just sort of ingesting them and loving them and loving them not really in an intellectual fashion, but a really physical fashion. I mean, I loved as a child masticating on on words and them finding their ways into the darkest caverns of my mouth. And it was a really physical sensation for me. It was it was a form of play. And mercifully I've retained that ever since, I think. And I also was jolly lucky when it came to literature too, because you know, my dad being an English teacher before he retired, um, I never really had to learn how to be discerning about literature. It was sort of given to me piecemeal, uh, the the most wonderful tomes and and, uh, pieces of literature. And so I never read anything but a good book until I was in my 20s, because it had all come via the kind of funnel of my dad. And so when I first read bad literature I knew instantly and I think it's a bit more experimental for most teens you know you have to sort of read a bad book and then a good book and then eventually make up your mind um but I I sort of had it done for me in a curious way but I think you've also got to have a natural love of words and you know I speak to you as a child that spent many an hour with a torch under a duvet pretending to be asleep while still reading and my son is nothing like that. That gene skipped him. And, I, you know, I almost live for the day. I'm holding my breath for the day that he'll say, can I buy a book, mum? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had an agent once who did the most amazing thing with her son. Um, she had three sons, two of whom adored reading from the get-go, and one who wasn't wild about it. Um, but she used to read Harry Potter to him, and she used to stop always on a cliffhanger and she would leave the bedside lamp on and she would leave the book open and she would say if you want to know what happens you may proceed if not I'll pick it up tomorrow and of course he just could not resist the temptation of carrying on and then lo and behold he developed passion I thought I will always keep that in my arsenal as a trick if I ever have a child that isn't wild about it I thought what a wonderful scheme I love that. That is such a good idea. Leave them wanting more. Yes, yes. And what's so brilliant about those books, those fantasy books in particular, is that there is just about a cliffhanger per chapter. So it's very easy to do that. Yeah. I loved being confused by a word and having to look it up. Yes. I did. And and then learning how, well, how can I put that into the context of my own conversations? And I yeah. still do that now. And you're teaching me words that A, didn't know and B, had never heard of. I mean, you you do sound, so Julie Andrews obviously famously does the voiceover for Bridgerton. Yes, she does. She yes. is. She is the narrator. You are her. She is you. <laughs> you are the son she doesn't know she's got. Well, me and Rupert Everett. Have you read Rupert Everett's memoir? Yes, I did. And blimey. The things I took away from Rupert Everett's uh, autobiography were far more kind of shocking. Uh, And you're you're walking away with the memory of him fantasizing about Julie Andrews as his mother. It speaks so, so well of both of us, Tom. (laughs) And not me at all. All those rather racy, debauched days in Paris. Oh, gosh. I'd like to have lived. Yeah. You know, you know what, this all comes, I believe, and you tell me if I'm wrong, 
from the mind of a reader because you become hungry for words and knowledge. And you realize once you delve into a book that it's almost not, I always describe it to my son as like stepping through the gates of Narnia or the door to Narnia. There's a world beyond it that can be whatever you want it to be. Um, I think that's true. And, and, and it's what reading has in common with the theater really, because it asks Mm. you, it, it gives you, a great nugget, a great jewel, and then it asks you to complete it and make the whole diadem. You know, it, it sort of it asks more of you than delivering the whole piece of art. It's I always say in the theatre, and I sort of played from both sides, if you like, um, that the performance really is made between the audience and the actor somewhere around where the cross arch is because you're imagining the rest of that room that you can't see. You're imagining the fourth wall. You're imagining what they're talking about as well as them saying it. And it's the same with literature. It's why people get so offended when there's film adaptation of their favourite book because it's never as they saw it, really. I always think with with Paris and the arts, it is all community-led. It's it's true of acting too. It's sort of they don't have the kind of great esteemed, revered acting schools like we do in London or even in New York. You know, it's it's all about community and who you've worked with and who inspires you. And it's much more kind of I'm not sure if it's preferable, but it's much more sort of fluid in a way. And I've been watching a lot of. Um, French television in lockdown because I've had Zoom French lessons with my mummy who's truly fluent and it's it's the best way I found of doing my homework because you get all the colloquialisms and um you just it doesn't matter how tiny the role is in a French serial or a French film the smallest part will be played by a top class actor they just don't seem to produce any hams. It just doesn't seem to. <laughs> you know, it's a lovely thing. Like when you're watching something like The Crown, they're all really excellent, but you know that you're going to see in at least one scene some lovely old British ham. <laughs> and you sort of laugh it, you know? But it just doesn't happen in France. As someone that sounds like they literally have stepped out of the script of Bridgerton with a passion for history, which is evident in everything we've discussed thus far, I wondered what long lost traditions would you introduce or reintroduce rather to society as we come out of lockdown to make the world a better place, a better community? That's a really good question. I think... Um, interestingly, I think that it's time, I'm not sure if I'm volunteering to write one, because I don't think I know enough to write one, but I think it's time for a sort of a new Emily Post, really, in terms of um, the etiquette of 2021. And I don't mean in a horrible kind of conservative, formal way. No, 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 neither do I in my, in my question to you. I just um, think, but- you know, there's, there's, there's lots of things, some of the charms of those old, for example, in Britain, yes. I love the idea of somebody marking your dance card. Yes, and that I you love dance. that. I love that. But I do think that um, we're sort of in lieu of a kind of um, 
social mores guideline like an Emily Post. You know, I think if people go out on a date, they don't know whether the most appropriate thing is to have their phone on the table facing down or in their pocket or sequestered in their bag, you know. And I think that there almost needs to be a set of um, fluid, warm-hearted rules that sort of say, no, if you're having a romantic encounter, you absolutely must have your phone in your bag, out of earshot, out of sight. And uh, things about things about when it's when it's appropriate to swear or how, how sparingly one should swear. Because I always think mm. I adore Anglo-Saxon four-letter words, but I think that they lose. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I really do. But what's your favourite, Tom? What's your favourite Anglo-Saxon four-letter word? I do like fuck. Actually, mm, I like fuck. Really interesting. It's one of the. It's one of those. Um, it's one of those words uh, that's had a backronym created for it because a lot of people think it's a, a, an acronym standing for fornication under consent of the king um, during times of plague and pestilence when people were kind of supposedly encouraged to procreate to kind of get the population back up. But that's not really true at all. It actually just meant to whack or to hit, which was why kestrels were called windfuckers. I did not know this. They would beat the wind with their wings as they flapped along. So they were called uh, wind fuckers, as you might say that they were wind beaters today. And um, they were famous in uh, Georgian times. They were famous um, vagrant fuckers who were not having sex with vagrants, but they were sort of angrily kicking them on their doorsteps and things like that if they if they found them on the doorstep. See, it's funny with, with the word fuck. I like fuck. I don't like fuck off. I find that rude. But you know the kind of yes. I, 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 does that does that make any kind of literal sense to you? Yes, it absolutely does. And I don't like shut the fuck up either because I, I also sort of, rude. Yeah, also very rude and also sort of completely illogical. You sort of it, it suddenly personifies the fuck, and you sort of think, well, show me where it is, and I'll shut it up for you. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, <laughs> maybe that's what maybe that's what bothers you so much. Yes, so, yes. I, I actually am very, very liberal about word usage as long as it has a kind of undergirding of logic. You know, it's. Do you know what's refreshing is to speak with somebody and hear. Um, Almost like a smorgasbord of words that I've I've not not run through my brain for a long time. It's it's like a crossword workout. <laughs> I oh, love it. Well, it's apropos because crosswords are my absolute passion. In fact, I couldn't have done this today, Kate, if I hadn't done the crossword in the morning because I have this addled old brain and I have to get my frontal cortex dancing and I find the only way to do that especially, <laughs> especially in lockdown is to take a run in the morning uh to get the the blood cells dancing, and then sit on a park bench and do the crossword to get the gray cells dancing and then really I can fire on well if I'm lucky one cylinder if I'm, <laughs> I don't yeah. believe that. If I'm jolly lucky, then two, but never three. So that's, that's one of your rituals. But let's go back to these traditions because kind of society has fallen to some degree in lockdown because we are all withdrawn from, from society for, for the sake of our own health and, and well-being. Yeah. When, as we come back out again, I mean, I'd, I'd like to replace kind of um, 
online digital dating apps with dance cards, for example. I, I like the idea yeah. of somebody holding you in their arms. You're forced to have a face-to-face -face exchange. It's not for long. It's as long as the dance lasts. Yes. Um, yeah. There's a sense of promise in this. Could I have this dance? Yes, you mark the card. And then there's that anticipation, the build-up, the eyes yeah. across the room, the side eye, the bridges and side eye, as yes. you look forward yes. to coming together on the dance floor. But... And also, I suppose in my lifetime, that existed to a point because we had the slow dance at the end of the night when I was yeah. a teenager. Um, and then that sort of faded with, with my age group, I think. And what you know, so, yeah, and what's so interesting about, about Bridgerton is that in terms of dance, it was that kind of cusp, that Georgian cusp, when uh, mm. in the early Georgian days, you would your partner dancing would be sort of flanking each other and holding hands and you'd never actually be scooped up in any kind of embrace. And then the Viennese Wars came along, which scandalized the whole of Europe because you actually danced in an embrace facing each other. And people thought that it was, you know, the vertical expression of a horizontal act. They really were absolutely <laughs> appalled by it. And, so um, a kind of, um, a kind of um, historical slut drop. Yes, or or as you were saying, a historical slow dance because it's sort of yeah diffused with this incredible intimacy, kind of really quite intrepid intimacy, and uh, I think that that's why it's so headily romantic because actually it lends itself to conversation um, in a very intimate fashion, kind of lovely, breathy, whispered conversation, but also. It's one of those things, I think, dancing, that gives you a clue as to how somebody might perform as a lover. It's a little bit like mm. kissing. I think, you know, if you have a really sensational kiss, a really top-notch, upper-echelons kiss, then you know exactly what that person is going to be like between the sheets, don't you, really? I, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's a very good um, amuse-bouche. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. It isn't. And, and, you know, listen, from that time, there's lots that I would never like to see um, back in our society again, the, the yes. subservience of women, the the fact yes. that um, that they had no say over which way their lives went. Slavery still wasn't abolished, not in, in this country, not until oh. 1807. And that's what that's the other thing I loved about Bridgerton was it was it it was imagining what could have happened if we had a slightly more liberal underpinning i'm going to say this time <laughs> undergirding let's go with girding i like undergirding in that society because the thing is um, queen charlotte who is depicted beautifully in in bridgerton um really did exist and and really was black and uh she really did have to take the reins a lot more when king george sort of went a bit potty and i think that there's this wonderful scene with Lady Danbury when she says, you know, um, we have uh, got this wonderful new place in society where we really have a voice now because of the kind of accident of the Queen and the accident of her new authority. And had that happened and had that structure been there to enable that to happen when Queen Charlotte did begin to take the reins a bit more, it could have been like Bridgerton. And we could be in yeah. a completely different world. What a grave shame. What I know, a grave it's shame. Such, it's such a pity. And actually that scene, that scene is the one that's indelibly seared on my mental retina. From the whole thing, it was the most powerful scene because I thought, think where we could be 
you know, if things had just been a little bit different. A whole lot different. Yeah. 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 Anything else that, that you would like to um, return to society by way of historical traditions? I think probably some of the wardrobe. I mean, I adore those sort of little button boots. I think they're very, very chic and spats and things like that. I think I think they're wonderful. I think they're due a renaissance, don't you, Kate? Oh, that would be quite nice. That would I be quite that nice. Would, I think that would be lovely. And there's not enough patent leather in the world, I don't think. Yeah, but you can keep the corsets. I've I've worn them. Keep they the really don't work. Quite happy with a sports bra, Tom. Not going to lie. Um, <laughs> or no bra at all. Even better. Even better. Now that that's taking us straight back to your experiences in Paris, right? Yes. <laughs> and I like being in my birthday suit. I'm in it rather too much in lockdown. I have to say. Are you? That's yeah. Good. I, was, I mean, I, I'm, I'm delighted that I managed to get dressed for you today. I love the fact that you're comfortable enough to kind of slink around in your own skin, your birthday suit. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I'm a huge uh, bather too. I just sort of sit there in Himalayan salts for hours on end. I just adore it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As a wordsmith, I wondered, at this age and stage in your life, what are the words you most long to hear? Oh, that's a wonderful question. More and more as I get older, it's not the words themselves, but it's the kind of curious interconnectivity of words that fascinates me. For example, testicle, I find fascinating because it's linked to testify and testimony because uh, the Latin root testis means witness. And very logically, that root finds its way into testimony and a test and all those witnessy like words. Yes. And then. But how does it end up in testicle? Exactly. It's, it's this total rogue sibling. And it's because a testicle is your little witness, or my little witness, to semen's secretion. And yeah. the most tenuous link. Um, uh, uh, what are other examples like? Oh, cathedral is another example like that because hedra is the Greek root meaning surface or seat, but seat and surface were really very, very close. So cathedral is the bishop's seat, the main uh, ecclesiastical mm -hmm. seat in a town. But then you have shapes that are pentahedrons or, or sexahedrons because they've got a certain number of seats or surfaces. So, you know, you've suddenly got this tenuous link between a Toblerone and a cathedral. And it's just, it's utterly bizarre, but it's, it's fascinating. Botuliform is a word that I love, meaning sausage-shaped, and I, I promise I'm not being naughty, but it just... <laughs> 
it's much more literal. But anything. Uh, tell me again, what's the word? What's betuliform, the word? form, which comes from the Latin botulus, meaning sausage. And there was a terrible thing that was kind of rampant in Victorian England called botulism, which was a specific kind of food poisoning um, that was related to sausages because, you know, they, they were also called bags of mystery because they were packed with all sorts and people were getting very ill. And when they died of botulism, they died of this kind of awful, creeping, full body paralysis. But later scientists said, well, maybe that paralysis in a tiny, tiny quantity could be very useful for particular things. And so botulist toxin was manufactured and was contracted into Botox. And that's what Botox is. It's, it's a um, synthetic version of botulous toxin, sausage poison. Well, Tom, every day is a school day. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Because, you know, you can't, be, there's almost not a word in the English language that doesn't give you a kind of mini history lesson attached to it. It's just extraordinary. And more so here than any other European country, because I mean, take France again. France had an academy that was very, very, or has an academy that's very, very strict about which words um, find themselves used in, in the French vocabulary. And so they can't really be a kind of hoover for global lexicon, whereas we've got pajamas and pudding from India, we've got deja vu from the French, and we just sort of hoover up mm. the world's lexicon if we think, oh, that's probably better than our version. After what the empire did, I, you know, the fact that we take the odd word from here and there, we we, we did a land grab and a people grab for hundreds of years, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, yes. I mean, I, I don't want to, to degrade our great nation in any way, but we behaved appallingly at times. Well, I um, think it's actually... We don't own that enough. We don't own that. We don't teach no. it. And we don't apologise enough, actually. No, for our it's absolutely true. And I think if you want to be a patriot, actually... Uh, the most important thing is to know what your country did badly. You know, I think mm -hmm. if, you, if you have a kind of blind patriotism and ignorant patriotism where you say everything we've done is marvellous, uh, it, it actually doesn't help a nation at all. And it's not true patriotism because it's sort of, it's no. not warts and all, you know, it doesn't help anyone. It's literally a whitewash. Yes, it's a whitewash, exactly. All the major issues facing us the only remedy really is education. And I think that's... Honest good. education. I, honest education, yes. And a, a change of the syllabus and a more multifaceted syllabus. And I think it's true of climate change too. I think all, all those major issues that we're facing, I think uh, can only be root tackled, not sort of leaf tackled, if you like. With my question to you about what words do you most long to hear? Are there is, I suppose, let, put hang that into a sentence. The phone goes, you're about to receive the news that you've been waiting to hear for so long, or oh. somebody's gonna call and they're gonna tell you something that will literally melt in your oh, ear. Oh, oh what, I, what is that? Oh, I went on a completely different... No, I loved it. Well, I learned a lot. Thank well, you. Well, I, no, I do know that, actually, Kate. I do, I do know what I'd love most of all. I think I would love... This sounds so egotistical, but I would love for an original piece of theatre to be written with me in mind and to play that role 
rather definitively and then be able to recreate it on screen in some fashion. I would love to get my teeth into something like that. I would just adore yeah. it. Because I haven't, you know, I, I, as you mentioned, I was a sort of, I am an erstwhile thespian and I used to tour all over the country in plays and I loved, I absolutely loved um, playing roles. I don't know if I could remember how to do it or what the approach is or anything like that because I haven't done oh, it. Oh, I'm sure you long. could. <laughs> it's been, I think it, it's I mean, been seven or eight years this year since I played a character. Really? I mean, so how did how did you end up with with that incredible education of yours and a career as 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 a working actor to going behind the reception desk of Celebs Go Dating, where you're showing pictures of vulvas to Lauren Goodyear? <laughs> how did that happen? Well, um, it was a really curious accident because I was in a play. I was in a repertory season in Windsor and I was in a dreadful Francis Sturbridge play, which was a murder mystery. And he was he wrote wonderful radio plays, but he didn't really translate them for the theatre. So you'd have characters coming on saying, I'm just carrying my suitcase into the bedroom. And you'd sort of go, no, but they don't need to, they can see that. It's not on the radio anymore. <laughs> and I was this very unlikely um, uh, suspect. I didn't actually commit the murder but I had a motive and I was a very unlikely suspect anyway I was in this terrible play and I decided that I couldn't just bumble along as my dad said living off the smell of an oily rag for the rest of my life and so <laughs> is I that what he said that's what he said he was so tickled by my penury <laughs> I bet he was because it's such a world away from the kind of salary every at the end of every month and yeah. you know that career path of rising through the ranks as oh. a teacher yes the antithesis yeah. of the teaching life absolutely mm -hmm. and I think yes probably that lack of comprehension was why he found it so funny <laughs> so, well, sometimes yeah. I, I can't actually eat <laughs> Was it? What did it? Because that is, you know, ninety-five percent of actors don't work. That's, yeah. I think that's the stat. And if it's wrong, it's not far off uh, being right. It's um, yeah. it's a famine and feast existence, isn't oh, it? Oh, it absolutely is. And I found that, you know, towards the end of my twenties, after I guess about eight years of doing it, um, I thought, oh, I don't know if I can countenance this anymore. And I knew I wanted to be in the arts still. Um, so I thought I'm going to have to do something really rather bold. And I secretly, while doing this play, auditioned for The Voice. And as you know, um, you know so well with The X Factor that the audition process yes. on that show is very visible. It's sort of front and centre. And with The Voice, yes. it's mostly behind the scenes. So I had about seven auditions before we ever got on screen and then uh, the remaining 90 of us sang for the judges and I flopped terribly but that show was so generous to me because I think they said to me you know if you if you don't get through then at best you'll have three minutes I had nearly 10 minutes of my interview and my backstory and and everything like that and little did I know that somewhere in a little pocket of England, um, an amazing lady called Frankie Nickel was watching it and thought, oh, we would quite like somebody that's a bit sort of blindly jolly hockey sticks like that for Celebs Go Dating to contrast um, with the agents who have to be a bit more earnest about things. And um, 
so she rang and uh, and I had to go in and I had to talk to camera, just sort of chew the fat for about an hour. And the thing that really sold it to me was that they said, um, well, you know, we don't really know what this role is supposed to be. So you do what you like. And if it's terrible, you'll just end up on the cutting room floor. I hope you don't mind. And <laughs> and if it's worthwhile, then it will stay in. And I thought it was such a liberating notion just to be able to chew the fat. Make of it what you will, yeah. Yes, yes. And I thought, oh, I really like that. And then um, and then I began to learn slowly but surely what, you know, what was of use and what was complete garbage. <laughs> I love the colliding worlds between you and the celebs that are going dating, yeah. which kind of is umbrella beautifully by Rob Beckett's oh, commentary. He has he's become a, a really, really good friend of mine. I, I, has he? I just, I cannot tell you how much I love him. He He's so talented. And actually, that was the first time I'd heard him was watching Celebs Back. Uh, five or six years ago and I thought I must see him do stand-up and now I've become the kind of Rob Beckett groupie and whenever he does stand-up I, I follow him all over the country he's probably completely fed up to the back teeth of me appearing I don't think so I think he's as uh, I think he's as, as as amused in your company as you are in his oh. um, and that's that's quite evident I heard you can hear that on your podcast um oh. the friendship kind of seeps out of of everything that you discuss and share on that oh. um, but when you're sat there and you're trying to extract kind of the wants and wills and whys from the likes of Lauren Goodyear or Joey Essex and you're you've come from this hugely educated background I mean you you know, you, you've you've asked them things before where they they're just like, I'm sorry, I don't know what that word means. And rather than scoff in their face, you very kindly go, Oh, well, what it means is, and you're so inclusive. I love that. I love that. I love the fact that you take the the class division out of the class division, if you like. Oh well, I'm I'm really happy that you feel that, Kate, because actually, it's sort of my big mission statement, and it's the reason that I do the word of the day on, on Instagram. And it's the reason that I explore the etymology because I think, you know, if you can get to the root and you can get to the familiar bit within that word, then it suddenly becomes a lot less complicated. It's like turning on a sixpence and you go, ah. Oh. And I think that um, the sadness with language is that it has become elitist to kind of use polysyllables. And it's that that disconnect that I was talking about before, about the intellectual pursuit versus the joy of just chewing on a great word. And I want yeah. to make it much more, more physical and much more of a kind of almost a sensual delight to chew on a really lovely polysyllable. And if I can share that via my uh, social platform, then I am absolutely thrilled because that's what it is to me. And that's why it's one of the greatest joys of my life. And um, I think it's it's very much like getting somebody into reading, you know, as you were saying earlier, that um, if you can share that and then it becomes a passion for somebody else, it's just, it's a, a gift that goes on for the rest of your life. It's It's extraordinary. I want to know, how does who you wanted to be measure up to the man that you are now? 
That's a very good question. I've never really thought about that. I think one just becomes much more grateful for what one has as opposed to the kind of grand design, if you like. Because I, I think when mm. I was a teenager, my great dream was to be clutching a Tony at 20. I mean, not a boy, but to, a Tony yeah. <laughs> Not some kind of auto. Would it be nice to you? <laughs> Love that. And sort of slowly but surely realigned. And every time a sort of tranche of good fortune has come into my life, I think I've recognised it as just that. And I think I've never felt it more than now when, you know, because of my life in the theatre, most of my friends are still in the artistic community and most of them are thespians. And, you know, that that struggle, how could one not be so grateful for one's lot when you see how difficult it is for, for everybody in the arts at the moment? I just sort of think, my goodness, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. No, I, I listen, we all count our blessings at a time like this just to be, you know, with a roof over our head and yeah. food on our table. Um, but I, I guess, you know, when you picture, you, you told me that, you know, at 20, you wanted to be waving a Tony in the air. Yes. Are you happy with where you've got to? And are you happy with the route it took to get you there? Yes, I think, I think you know, what I realised um, quite recently about acting and what I do now is that I was, ne- acting falls into two camps for me. You either have the kind of kings and queens of metamorphosis like Meryl Streep who who disappears into whoever she's playing whomever she's playing I should say or you've got the people that don't really change that much like Catherine Hepburn who you always see Catherine Hepburn but she's so so dazzling and her intellect is so incandescent that you listen in for the music of her of her speech and you love what she imbues a role with, even though you can see that star. And um, I was never great at metamorphosing completely. And the joy for me with acting was communicating this wonderful story by a wonderful writer who was wiser, brighter than I, and um, conveying those words. And what I realized about television is that it's much the same thing, except it's sort of your own story that you're communicating. And so that commonality is something I've only realized quite, quite recently. I I sort of used to see a great chasm between the two. And now I think it's it's a a tiny sort of cigarette paper between the two, actually. It's, It's all about telling stories to people. Which you kind of do from behind the reception desk at Celebs Go Dating. You extract people's stories, their vulnerabilities, how they're feeling in that moment. And you do it in a way that makes them feel very safe. Um, and, and I think that you wrap a lot of that reality TV um, desire for the minutiae of people's lives. You wrap that in kindness, which is a, which is a nice uh, thing to do. Well, there's, there's a word that is the mot juste. It is, it is the word of our time, isn't it? I think that... Um, Kindness has to be uh, omnipresent, really. I think so. Otherwise, yeah, you, you. I think we have a duty of care. I was always very, very mindful of that when I was hosting the X Factor. Yes, that duty of care to people's mental well-being and their mental health. Yes, yeah. Well, because yeah. nothing like an audition for kind of um, standing on the edge of the precipice, naked, and saying, "What do you think of me?" It's so 
terrible exposing. exposing yeah yeah so so to have one person at least uh, by your side saying you're marvelous you know that's that's just great it buoys you well, it kind of softens the blow that is Rob Beckett's commentary as well. Because <laughs> you're going, oh, fabulous. And he's like, yeah, you big freak. Um, but, but, so it's this, it's the sweet and sour, Tom. Yes, yes, yes. And I have to say, none of us are immune. Even I've had it from Mr. Beckett. I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what he could find in me to tease, really. <laughs> <laughs> Where does he stop? Um, before we go, um, we're three weeks in as we record today on um, Celebrity Best Home Cook. Oh, yes, yes. Are you still, have you filmed it? Is it still, is no, it ongoing? It is, um, it is wrapped. Yes, absolutely. And one of the people that I did it with was another guest on this wonderful podcast. And her, her episode is so poignant. I really urge everyone to listen it's beautiful and um that's Shona darling Shona and she I'm going to retain her as a friend forever because she was just heaven and to me she is the definition of best home cook because what she did that was so brilliant was if there was a, a kind of a faux pas which was almost inevitable in that setting she always knew how to remedy it because her repertoire is so extensive and there's so much in her arsenal. And even tiny things, um, I remember making a lemon curd with her and she said, I'm going to add my corn flour at the very, very end because then it will thicken it in the same way, but it won't taste of corn flour at all. And I thought it's that kind of really detailed knowledge that's most extraordinary. But I was dazzled by the talent. I thought in the first week, I thought I'm gonna really have to pull my socks up. You know, you don't expect that on a celebrity cooking show, you know, but they were most extraordinary. But the whole thing seemed to be suffused with good fortune because I remember befriending a really, really lovely cameraman on that show. And he said to me, can you believe, I said to him, can you believe that Mary Berry is not a dame because she's an octogenarian? Surely she should be a dame. And he said, well, maybe she did a Vanessa Redgrave and she was offered and she refused. And I said, I just don't see Mary doing that somehow. And then the second we wrapped, she got the gong. And so did Gareth Thomas, who was also in the show. He got his own yeah. view for all his amazing philanthropy. So uh, it was really um undergirded with good fortune um I really hope that you do well in the show but more than that I really hope you carry on making your podcast because as much as you wanted a Tony at 20 your your interest in everything especially your guests is is so wonderful Tom and, and as a journalist of 25 years I can tell you um you really hold your own when it comes to um the research the questions that you ask and the and the way in which you listen so if, I would implore people if you like this podcast go and subscribe to Tom's because I think you'll find um that you're you're gonna like a lot of what he has to say oh. and hear well thank you well I'd love to have you on it because I think after Some this experience deal. I need a sequel of you absolutely oh my goodness I'm gonna think of so many words here's to being lifelong learners Absolutely. Every day is a school day, my friends. I really hope that television producers across the land realise um, all that you have to offer, because I'd love to see so much more of you in, in, in all those surprising places, but particularly 
countdown. You need this man. Oh, they do. Who? You should be on Dictionary Corner. <laughs> thank you so much. You are, sir, a gentleman. Oh. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I love it. I love it. And lots of love. Well, that's it from us for this week. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Wherever you're consuming us, be it on your walk, your workout, or just pacing around the house, because let's face it, there's nowhere else to go, is there? As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK, and editing and co-production comes courtesy of Callum Goddard Mucklow. Andy Bell, as always, has provided our music and our beats. You can catch all of his work on iTunes and Spotify with Oasis and ride and as a solo artist we'll be back next week until then do as we do and please drink responsibly but more than that just take great care of yourselves thanks for listening 